Well, this thing's got a cup holder. Cool. Look at that. <laughs> good to be with you guys this morning. It's good to be back. Um, I told the first service that, well, the first service was my first time back speaking, preaching for after two years. It's been a two-year stint, a little over two years. So it's good, good to be back here and back with you guys and I love it. Some of you know me as John, and John the church planter. Some of you know me as John Lillian's dad. Um, others of you uh, just know me as that new guy. So it's good to be here. <laughs> um, we are going to be talking about a little bit of a sobering topic today. Uh, I want to talk about affliction, and to do that, I want to start by looking at what Jesus had to say about it. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you and its own, as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Warm, nice, fuzzy thoughts from Jesus this morning. But the truth is, the Bible does promise that if you follow Christ, if you love Jesus, if that's apparent in the way you live and the words you speak, that you're going to endure affliction on because of it. It's just, it's just the way it works. So the question I want to ask this morning is, how do we endure that? Milkar, good to see you, man. Yeah, sorry, this is one of my friends. He's another pastor, good, good friend. So... What I want to um, do is talk about three different kinds of afflictions that this passage addresses, that God's people will endure. One of them is going to be slander. We're going to talk about slander, about how people will say things about you. They'll malign your character, and they'll take your name and drag it through the mud. It's going to happen. The other is persecution. Another nice thought and something I know you wake up in the morning yearning to be persecuted. But the Bible does promise again that if you follow Christ and live for him, you will be persecuted. And the third is a vendetta, just this continual pursuit of you and against you. Now, you might be thinking, oh great, I'm glad I came to church this morning. Wonderful, this new guest guy gets up and starts talking about my suffering. Not exactly what I was hoping for. But the, the thing is, I don't think uh, the church necessarily talks about it enough. I was listening to a podcast, and I can't remember which one it was, but it, the guy was talking about how possibly the best thing we can be teaching our churches right now in the midst of this culture, in this time, going through what we're going through, as, as messed up as our country seems to be, the best thing we can be teaching our churches is how to suffer. In preparation, possibly, for what's coming, we don't know. But we need to learn how to suffer. So what I'm going to do with each, each of the three of these, the slander, persecution, and vendetta, is I'm going to talk about the affliction itself a little bit. I'm going to talk about the typical human response, because we all have a typical human response, right? The way we react to things. And then I'm going to talk about the way of Christ in response to that affliction. Because Jesus calls us to something different. He calls us to a different life, not just to faith, but on the basis of that faith, he calls us to live a certain way. For the purpose of our witness in the world, that people would look and see that, and also for our own good, so that we can become more like Christ. So the way of Christ in response to the affliction, how do we live as people of God in the midst of our affliction? And then finally, where do we possibly get the energy to live the way of Christ? Where does that come from? If you're like me, it's not easy. 
Um, when you're slandered or you're persecuted or you're, you know, there's a vendetta against you, you have some sort of affliction in your life, I don't always respond in the, the greatest way. And so how do we live with the energy and the power to do that? All right. So let's look at this passage we're looking at today, 2 Samuel 16. David was kind enough to read part of it there for us. This is a massive text, so I'm not going to read through all two chapters today, just to, you know, you can read it on your own if you want. But verse 1 through 4, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. You guys remember Mephibosheth? Can you say that, by the way, Mephibosheth? It's kind of hard to say. But the guy uh, we learned about a few weeks ago, he was, he's a little, little crippled guy. And I know that didn't sound too PC, I'm sorry. But that's what the way scripture refers to him as lame. So he was dropped as a baby, as a child, and then like had, didn't have use of both of his legs. It's kind of sad. And he's this kid who's grown up probably with a pretty tough life. And we learned earlier in this book that David, the king, um, you know, Saul had been defeated. David was now king in Saul's place. And David was good friends with one of Saul's sons, uh, Jonathan. And, and on behalf of Jonathan, Saul said, is there, or David said, is there anyone in Saul's household to whom I can show kindness? And they said, well, there's this little lame kid named Mephibosheth. You can show him some kindness. And so what David did was he brought this kid in and he sat him at the table, his own table. You know, I imagine there was a feast and everything. And and basically gave Mephibosheth, this little kid who really wasn't deserving, who probably actually expected to die because he was Saul's, related to Saul, David gave him everything that was entitled to the king. Inheritance, the food, the presence of the king, he could sit with him. And so you got Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth had this servant named Ziba. And so Ziba shows up here. So David's out kind of fleeing from Absalom. They're, they're out, they've been fighting, and they've been doing a bunch of other stuff. And, and, and here they are, out in who knows where. And Ziba just kind of shows up out of nowhere. And you might be looking at Ziba and go, man, he, he looks like a pretty nice guy because it says that he showed up with, bearing a, with, oh, he showed up with a couple of donkey saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread. I like bread. A hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, mm, and a skin of wine. (laughs) Yeah. Skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat. And the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. Haven't I been so thoughtful? And the king said, and where's your master's son? <laughs> so they're out in this, David's out there. He's with his mighty men. He's with his, all his old group of people. They're fleeing. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Mephibosheth's servant shows up with all this stuff. And David's like, why are you here? <laughs> you ever feel like that when someone comes in as part of your group? They just kind of show up and you're like, why are you here? Maybe you're that person. That they, I know that's me. Why are you here? And David asked him, he says, where's your master's son? Where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For, to, he, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. 
Ziba told David that Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth had basically stayed behind so he could take the kingdom from David. So David now wants to reward Ziba for telling him this and gives Ziba everything that he had given Mephibosheth. Right there on the spot. Bam. Well, you might be looking at Ziba right now and go, okay, this guy's awesome. He's nice. He showed up with all the, the donkeys and the summer fruits and the raisins and the wine. And, and you know, not only that, but the news about what Mephibosheth had been trying to do to David. And you're thinking, man, he's a pretty great guy at this point. But the story goes on. I want to jump ahead. Go turn, turn a couple pages and you'll end up in chapter 19, verse 24, where the story continues of what happened. This part starts off, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. So this, in this part of the text, David and, and everybody are, are coming back. They're coming back to where David lived. They're coming back to the kingdom. And Mephibosheth comes out to greet the king. And check out what he looked like and what was going on. He had neither taken care of his feet. I don't know what that means, That's, but it's probably gross. Nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Does that sound like a guy to you who's been staying around trying to take over the kingdom while the king's gone? Sounds to me like he's a little depressed. You know, his king had left, kind of maybe let himself go or was in a little bit of mourning because the king had gone, was away from him. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? I imagine David was kind of maybe trying to test Mephibosheth here to see what really happened because of the news Ziba gave him. And he answered, my lord, oh my king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride it and go on it and go with the king. For your servant, I'm lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. So here we start off with this first affliction that I want to talk about today, which is slander. And Mephibosheth has been slandered by Ziba. At least this is his story, his side of the story, right? I'm not quite sure yet. It's obvious in the text that David isn't quite sure yet what actually happened or who to trust in this situation. But nevertheless, Mephibosheth has been slandered. Slander, just so you know, is this... Slander's not just like kind of like, hey, did you hear about... You hear about what so and so did? That's gossip. Gossip not good either. Just so you know, like it's not it's destructive. But slander is talked about a lot in Scripture. In the New Testament, it, um, the writers of the New Testament and the letters they write to the churches, those early churches who are learning how to live as Christians among culture, slander is spoken out against a lot. In fact, it's put up there with like murder and and some other horrible things. But slander is when when a person comes and I go. Hey, Lily. John, John Hoganson back there. You know, John, he's not a great guy. And you, and you say these bad things about someone in order to try to lift yourself up. That's not true, John. I love you, John. But you say things to try and push another person down in order to lift yourself up. That's slander. And it might be true, and it might not be true. It doesn't really matter because you still, if you slander someone, you're still coming and attempting to make yourself look good by making another person look bad. That's slander. And I can tell you that in my experience in almost 30 years of ministry, 
that there has been nothing more destructive to the churches that I've been around than when people start to slander. Nothing more destructive that I, in my experience, I'm sure there are some other things. But it's spoken out against, and here this, the scripture says that this is something that God's people here are enduring. Now the typical reaction, human reaction to slander is to believe it, right? You know, I mean, here we see David, he doesn't quite know what to believe it seems, but he does believe it because he goes on to give half of the kingdom to Mephibosheth and half to Ziba just because he's in a leadership predicament. What do I do? So David believes it, and I wonder if maybe there's a, there's a part of Mephibosheth that kind of believed it too. The text doesn't say, but Mephibosheth had been living a hard life. I imagine he didn't think too highly of himself. He'd been told he was lame over and over again, you know, here by Ziba too. And I wonder if maybe Mephibosheth believed it too. Slander is not only destructive because it, it puts another person down and, and does not build up the body of Christ, but it also is destructive because of the people who actually start to believe it. David believed this slander and it, and it hurt Mephibosheth. But there's a different way. There's the way of Christ. Now, the way of Christ is that when slander comes your way, when your name is defamed, that you stay faithful to the king. And this is exactly what we see from Mephibosheth. I love, though, in, in the church, you see the, the um, early apostles, they talked about this a lot, about staying faithful in the midst of slander. Peter writes in 1 Peter, let me flip over to it there, 1 Peter 3. He says, uh, next page, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. I love how he says when, when persecutions or when suffering or slander comes your way, that you hold Christ up as good, hold Christ up as holy. Your name might be, might be defamed or maligned in this situation, but Christ's name is the one that's completely good, so lean into Christ's name. And he goes on and he says, yet, uh, he says be, prepared, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. <laughs> Peter says, you want to put someone to shame? You want to get back at someone who's slandered you? He says, show your Christian character. Show the way of Christ. That's how you really get back at them. Kind of kill them with kindness, right? Get back at them that way. The way of Christ is to stay faithful. Revelation, uh, Jesus talks to the church of Smyrna, and he talks again, this is an entire church that had been slandered. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of but are a synagogue of Satan. You know, he's referring to these people that were lying about what it took to become a Christian in their midst and just causing havoc in the church and putting everybody else in the process, down in the process of doing it. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, 
and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So what Jesus is saying there is he's saying that this is something you're going to endure. But don't be afraid. Don't let him get to you. Remain my church. Remain faithful to the end. There's a reward coming. Typical human reaction is to believe it, but the way of Christ is to stay faithful to the King. And this passage, I love Mephibosheth's response. I mean, if you, if you look, keep going on in this chapter 19, where Mephibosheth answers the king, answers David. David says, why did you not go out to meet me, Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth answered, my lord, O king, my servant, deceive me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle the donkey for myself, that I may ride it on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, uh, to my lord the king. Listen to this response. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. Puts his trust in the king. He still remains faithful to the king. For all my father's house were not but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and, you and Zebeth shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all since my lord, the king, has come home safely. Right there you see this character of someone who's really following the Lord, right? He doesn't, he doesn't need anything other than the presence of the king. He says, give it all to him. I don't care. Do what you think is right. I got you back. <laughs> Man, that I could be a lame person in need of nothing more than the presence of my king. So where do we get the energy to endure this? Where do do we get the energy to live like this? Well, it's the presence of your perfect king. It's the presence of the one who created you, who came to earth and lived a perfect life on your behalf. The presence of him is the one that gives us the energy to live like him. This is why David, even in the midst of his darkest days, you know, David wrote most of the Psalms, these beautiful poems right in the middle of the Bible. If you want to find the Psalms, you just literally open in the middle of the Bible. Oh, that was Isaiah. <laughs> Psalms. <laughs> Nine times out of ten, you'll hit it. But David wrote in the midst of his darkest days, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He says, in the midst of my darkest time, in the midst of my most grievous sin, God, don't depart from me. Your presence is all I need. When the king's greatness and presence, the king's greatness and presence is all that matters to you, what can they do to you, really? You've been slandered, your name's been maligned, but Christ's name has been exalted. So find yourself in Christ's name. So slander. Second thing is persecution. Second Timothy, you say, maybe I won't experience persecution. I mean, there's, there's Christians, we've lived a, a fairly comf- comfy life here in America as the church. Um, I think it might be maybe some of the cause for some of our woes as a church, but um, nevertheless, there are Christians all over the world who are enduring horrific persecution. 
It's not beyond those of us who are faithful, even here. Second Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, he's one of his younger kind of uh, protégés, and he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is just the way it is. This is part of the life as a Christian. And that's not something you were taught when you came to faith, was it? Well, maybe for some of you it was. <laughs> Jeff's pretty honest up here. <laughs> but some of us were taught that, you know, when we come to faith in Christ, we're going to get this incredible, easy, wonderful, your best life right now. And it's going to be amazing. And for some of you, the Christian experience has not been that. <laughs> I know for me, I, I've been a believer, uh, a follower of Christ my entire life, as long as I can remember and it's been this. You know, I mean, there's, there's been times where I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of flying high and I really know that God's presence is there with me. I can, I can sense it. And then there's other times where I maybe deviate a little bit or my mind gets focused on other things or something really bad happens to me and I get distracted because I'm, that's who I am. <laughs> and I don't necessarily feel the presence of God that is there already but you will endure persecution. 2 Samuel 16, 5-8. This passage goes on. And this part, I like this part. This part's funny. Well, you know, probably wasn't funny to be there. But when David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul. So here we go, someone else from Saul, right? Whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. So here's David with all these people around him. All the people of David were with him. And not only were the people with him, but he has mighty, mighty men. And we're going to learn about the mighty men a little later. I mean, they're, they're mighty. There's a reason they're called that. And they're on his left, they're on his right, they're around him. And still this guy Shimei keeps cussing at him and throwing rocks at him. I mean, just blatant persecution. Persecution is when someone tries to afflict you because of who you are and what you represent as followers of Christ. So he comes out, and look at what happens. Through stones at David. The typical human reaction, by the way, to that, I mean, what's the typical human reaction? When you're, if you got a dude who's coming up and throwing stones at you and cussing at you all along the way, and you're the king, what's the natural human response? Off with his head, Right? Get him out of here. So he's throwing stones. Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you the, all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. That's what he said. And he said, your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. That's not in scripture. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, here it is, said to the king, this is one of David's right-hand guys, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. There it is. The natural human response to persecution is to get back at him. Off with his head. It's retaliation. It's trying to outdo the persecutors with a fight. I, this is another thing. I mean, Christians are, are seen by the world, 
now, I think a lot is doing that. We tend to fight persecution, in our, at least in our culture, in our country, with another fight. Um, that's normal, according to the world, right? But the way of Christ is not normal. Think of Jesus before he's about to be crucified on the cross. I mean, when we talk about the way of Christ in the midst of persecution, who better to point to than Christ himself? You know, Jesus, the night he was betrayed, this was the night before he was about to be crucified. He's, you know, he just had a, you know, um, a week where he was worshipped and he spent time with his disciples, breaking bread, had one of his disciples betray him, and now he's in extreme anguish because he knows what's coming. He knows his time is almost there. And Jesus goes into a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, asks his disciples to pray while he's in there. They can't even do that. I mean, they're, you know, they fall asleep. <laughs> and Jesus is in there by himself, alone, praying. And it says that his anguish and his anxiety was so great that he was actually sweating blood. And Jesus starts to pray. What would your prayer look like? in that moment, knowing that the Romans were coming after you? Uh, mine might look like, dear Lord, give me the strength to overcome my enemies. I might pull out one of those imprecatory psalms, which is, you know, have wrath upon my enemies and raise up a mighty nation against them. And, you know, I'd want, to, I'd want revenge. I'd want, to, I'd want to avoid dying and definitely avoid being crucified. But that's me. Maybe some of you are tougher than I am. Jesus is down on his knees and he prays, Lord, basically prays, Lord, take this cup of suffering from me. Not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus willingly walks toward the persecution and embraces it. And that, that's, that's a thought that's completely foreign to me. And I think to a lot of us. But nevertheless, that's the way of Christ. We welcome it as a blessing. Look at, look at this uh, Matthew 5. If you got your Bible, you might want to even flip over there. But, but I want you to listen to this, what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. This is the, like the best sermon ever preached, I think. I mean, I don't know. probably can't argue with that. I'm up here and you're down there. <laughs> and, and you're not really, I don't know why you can't respond to me, but that's the rule, I guess. But anyway... <laughs> This is like the best message ever given. I mean, it, it's Jesus, right? Who could top that? Listen to what he says, though. This is, this is the way of Christ right here. Jesus teaching all these people. He said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. Right? Jesus, Jesus takes the law of Moses that had been with these people for centuries. This said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That if someone comes up to you and punches you in the face, you have every right to punch them back. I mean, this is the way, this is what we're taught, right? Um, you know, if someone murders someone, off, you know, they're gone. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Your enemy gets at you, you have the freedom to retaliate. Jesus says this was the part of the Mosaic law, but he says, I have a different law. He says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. I mean, what a mind-blowing concept that is. In the midst of the Roman Empire, 
Jesus stands up and says this to people. Do not resist your persecutors. Jesus knew he was talking to possibly some future Christians and people who would be a part of the early church that would be severely persecuted and even unto their horrific deaths and tortures. And Jesus says, do not resist your persecutor. Do not resist evil. And there's something about persecution in the way of Christ that when we're persecuted, you know, I don't know if it's like we go seek it out, but we don't resist it. There's something about the way of Christ that we welcome it as a blessing. He goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say, do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him your other also. That's kind of a smart out thing to do, right? Slap you. All right, here, buddy. <laughs> Go ahead and have the other one. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, we don't have tunics, I don't think, but if anyone sues you and takes your stuff, let him have your other stuff as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And then he goes back to the law. He says, you have heard it said, you should love your enemy. Or you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, this is what we all know. This is what we all live by. This is, this is kind of a normal thing to think. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that? And if you go and you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says, you want to keep striving for perfection? You want to keep pursuing the light that I'm bringing? Live in this way. Love instead of hating. Praying for your persecutors. I mean, can you imagine praying for your persecutors? I tried this. Um, so I was honest with the first service. I might as well be honest with you guys. Is that all right? <laughs> there weren't as many people in the first service, but... Um, <laughs> Um, I'm just coming off a two-year stint um, where I haven't been in vocational ministry. I intentionally stepped out for about two years. Um, I've been planning churches for 20-some years. And, um, and then last, the last project we had wasn't exactly a church plant, but it was something different. And the church we were a part of, um, it just ended, ended really bad for us. I was hurt by the church, like big time. Um, this whole thing of suffering from slander... Um, I don't know if I'd call it persecution. Maybe I would. <laughs> Can you be persecuted by the Christians? Probably. Um, but I, I was, it was extremely hurtful. And I had to step out of ministry for my own heart's sake. <laughs> um, I, dealt, I, dealt, I really struggled with this. Seeing it as a blessing instead of a curse. But what was... Amazing is, even as I was sitting in the meeting where they were slandering my name, I, I'll, I'll never forget this meeting, I wish I could, but I never will, um, slandering my name, defaming my character, um, saying all kinds of things I probably could have taken legal action for, but didn't. <laughs> um, I remember just having this sense of, you know, this scripture coming to my mind and God saying, pray for those who persecute you. My heart wasn't there. It didn't seem like my heart was there. I did not want to pray for them. I didn't want to bless them, but I made a commitment right then and there 
that I was not going to speak bad of them ever. Um, I was going to pray for them. If anybody else brought up something negative about it, the situation, I was going to try and bring a good construct. Not for the sake of just putting on a happy face and yay, everything's all fine. But just for the sake that I didn't want to get involved in defaming someone because they had hurt me. And I'm telling you that it was, I'm not trying to prop myself up as like some great saint or something, but it was this practice of praying for your pers- my persecutors that really was one of the things that helped me get through that to the point that I, you know, God's been healing me and he's been restoring my love for the church. I told the early service too that I, I didn't, I, I remember actually saying to some of my friends and other, other pastors, I don't know if I said this to you in Milgar, but, but just that, you know, I, I, I love Jesus right now in the midst of that. I love Jesus, but in the midst of this suffering, I just don't love the church. Like, I mean, she's kind of a whore. <laughs> and just asking God as a result of that feeling, I know it wasn't right that I would, that he would somehow restore my love for the church, for his bride, who he loves. And so there's this conflict within me. Have you ever been there? <laughs> um, but Jesus gives us a way. And not only that, but he's treated us in that way. He's loved us with that kind of love when we've you know, defamed him or maybe gone against him or maybe not even stood up for him. Um, he still loved us and he, he's died for us. He's pursued persecution and welcomed it on our behalf. And so I'm just very thankful. And I hope you have a similar experience if you've been hurt by the church. That maybe um, you would pray to God in the same way and ask him to give you a a heart to love the church again and be willing to forgive, even if it still is very hurtful and damaging. I've lost my place. That's what you get for being honest. There we go. Way of Christ is to welcome it as a blessing. Um, Jesus, in that same sermon I was telling you about, he said, um, let me find it here so I don't mess it up. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. And that takes it one step further. I mean, that's not even just praying for your enemies. That's like praying for enemies and saying, yes, this persecution is awesome. Be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And you see this in the early church when you go back and you read the book of Acts, and you read about that early church that was trying to figure out how to be the church in the midst of that culture. You see this, you see this just kind of coming out of the church naturally. Is their natural response to persecution was rejoicing. That's always blown my mind every time I've read that. Or you read passages like in James where it says, whenever trouble comes your way, let it be an opportunity for joy. And I remember thinking, oh, I can't do that. That's, not, that's ridiculous. But why not? <laughs> why not? Okay, so like if Jeff, <laughs> I'll use Jeff as the example here. <laughs> if Pastor Jeff uh, like is out there and on a Sunday morning you're all in here waiting for him to come up and start talking and he comes kind of limping in. <laughs> I like to imagine Jeff losing a fight because um, he's a fighter, you know. But he, he comes limping in, he's got black eye and he's got, his leg isn't working right because he just got beat up for the sake of preaching the gospel. Let's say that happens. Probably won't, but let's say it does. We're not supposed to get around Jeff going, oh, are you okay? Oh, poor Jeffy. You know, we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to throw a party. We're supposed to say, yes! Jeff was just beaten <laughs> for the sake of the gospel. That, that's what we do. 
That's the way of Christ. That sounds odd, and it is odd, because it's not the way of the world, and it's not the way we've been raised, it's not the way our culture thinks, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice when there's persecution. Wow. <laughs> Ignatius. Any of you guys like, like church history? I didn't think so. I like church history because I'm that kind of guy. Oh, one person, awesome. <laughs> I love church history because I love looking back and seeing what others have endured um, throughout these last, I mean, there's 2,000 years of history and we can look back and see the faithful throughout the centuries and the things that they've endured. I get, I, my faith is strengthened by, by looking and reading about that thing, that stuff. There's one guy, one of the church, early church fathers. So you had Jesus, and then after Jesus, the Holy Spirit came, and you had the apostles, and that was called the apostolic era, where the apostles led, and the early church like, kind of came up out of this incredible experience um, where, if, where the Holy Spirit came down on everybody, and, and the church was empowered, and, um, and then they had persecution and, and all kinds of stuff. And as that's happening, the Roman Empire is building and building and building in power. And not only that, they get to this point where by the end of the first century, there's some pretty severe persecution of Christians. And even if you don't know Scripture, you probably know and have heard about the persecution of Christians in this time. It's pretty hor- horrific. I mean, being, being thrown to lions in the middle of a coliseum full of people cheering that you would be torn and ripped up to shreds, and they'd watch it. We think some of the stuff we see in our culture is brutal. That, no, nothing compares to that. That is horrible. So you got this guy um, who was born about the time that Jesus was. His name was Ignatius. Born in the, and he was part of the early church. He was raised in the church of Antioch. You can read about Antioch in Acts chapter 13 and after that. But he's raised and he's raised and he has strong faith. And it, as he grew up, he became a leader. And What's I think is most intriguing about Ignatius, I mean, he has incredible teachings. He's known as one of the first interpreters of Scripture, the Scriptures that we have, which is just, I think, really cool to learn how he saw the Scriptures and, and all that. We might talk about that in the interpreting class. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but what was more interesting about Ignatius was how he died. Um, because the Romans were after him, and the church was starting to kind of get defensive for Ignatius. I mean, this is their leader. This is one of the patristic early church fathers. That was what we call them now. I mean, they're, they're up there. They're, they're worthy of admiration. <laughs> and the early church loved them and started to rise up to try and defend Ignatius against persecution when the Roman Empire wanted to, wanted to kill him. And this is what Ignatius said to the church. He says, I fear your kindness, which may harm me, <laughs> I fear the persecution, death by lions in a Colosseum, which may harm me. He says, no, I fear your kindness, which may harm me. You may be able to achieve what you plan, but if you pay no heed to my request, it will be very difficult for me to attain unto God. If you remain silent about me, I shall become a word of God. But if you allow yourselves to be swayed by the love in which you hold my flesh, I shall again be no more than a human voice. He says, if you succeed and protect me from this persecution that lies ahead of me, okay, wonderful, I can still preach the gospel with my mouth, but if you let me go and let me die as a martyr, possibly the first martyr, then my life, my death, is going to become so much more powerful an example of the gospel than any of my words could ever have. 
And it says this, he was in the, in the, I don't know if he's in a cart or whatever, they were taking him to his death. I mean, he's on the way to his death. And he says, now I begin to be a disciple. I mean, can you imagine that? One of your church leaders who you admire, who, who's lived a holy life, who's taught you how to interpret Scripture, loved, loved the Scriptures of Christ, and, and has been there among you, and you've heard of him, and you know him, and you've benefited from the teaching that God's given through him. He's on his way to his death, and you hear that on the way to his death, he's saying, oh yeah, now I'm beginning to be a disciple. <laughs> Let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones, dismemberment come upon me so long as I attain to Jesus Christ. Wow. You see, I, I love this whole idea. Um, I don't love the idea of people dying, but I do love the idea of Christ's people being willing to pursue anything, any kind of persecution for the sake of the gospel. I love that. It shows that, they, that we as God's people recognize there's a bigger plan than just my momentary suffering, no matter how harsh it might be. And we see this in 2 Samuel as this text goes on. Because um, look at David's response to this crazy man, Shimei. <laughs> so Abishai wants to take his head off. That's the common human response. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zuriah? He says this to um, Abishai who wants to take his head off. If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have, I done, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him, leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. Yeah, And there they refre he refreshed himself. So this whole idea of that we endure persecution not just for the sake of being martyrs. I mean, that's not the whole point. The point of being, even being a martyr or suffering persecution during it is that Christ's name might be made great and God might be using that persecution for a much bigger purpose. In fact, he probably is. 2 Corinthians talks about this. You remember David, or uh, David, get my names mixed up. Paul writes this, the church in Corinth, and Paul's talking about persecution, and he says that God's given uh, him this thorn in his flesh. You guys remember this, there's a lot of debate around what this thorn in the flesh is. He said, David said that to keep me from being conceited, God allowed this thorn in the flesh. And a lot of people postulate about whether, you know, is the thorn in the flesh, it must be a nagging wife, or, you know, or, you know, some illness he had, or, you know, there's all kinds of theories I think the answer is right there in the text. I mean, the best way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. And right around there, before he talk, says, talks about the thorn of the flesh, and after he talks about the thorn of the flesh, he talks about persecution. So the thorn, it makes sense to me that the thorn of the flesh is, flesh is the persecution that he has to endure. And if that's the case, he says there's a great purpose in this persecution, or in, in this thorn in the flesh that God has given me, this messenger of Satan to harass me, is to keep me from being conceited. Not a, bad, not a bad purpose, right? And even more admirable that Paul recognizes that purpose and can be humble enough to say, yeah, I, I've got an arrogance issue. <laughs> this is probably why it's here. 
But there's even a greater purpose that he points to. He says that this is there so that Christ, he, may, he might see that Christ's grace is sufficient in his suffering. I mean, that's, that's incredible to see the different purpose in our suffering. Not this, woe is me, I'm in trouble, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? But when trouble comes our way, we see it as an opportunity for Christ's grace to be sufficient for us. Because what happens when we do that is, is what he goes on to say. He says, when, when, my, when I'm weak, he's strong. And he says, in fact, my, or his perfection, his, his grace is made perfect in my weakness. Do you want God's grace to be perfect among you? Do you want to experience the perfect grace of Christ? Paul says, that's only possible through the suffering that you experience. His, the weaker we are, the more powerful he becomes. And this isn't like some selfish thing of God, although he has every right to be selfish and do that. That's, it's actually out of his love. Because the thing that we've been created for most is his grace, is his loving kindness toward us. And if we can experience anything, even suffering, even affliction, to be able to experience the perfection of His grace, then we can see why the way of Christ is to welcome persecution as a blessing. So, the energy that endures that His power is made perfect in your weakness. And then finally, vendetta. Vendetta. And this might seem weird that we add this on here because a lot of times vendetta is this kind of... Um, campaign the dictionary says it's a prolonged campaign against you i just quoted the dictionary to you hope you're glad this morning um prolonged campaign against you but a lot of times we think of vendetta as that coming from family members and that was definitely the case in david's situation here i mean it goes on for another chapter and a half i'm not going to read all that to you but but basically what happens is david's got a son who's after him absalom is trying to take over the kingdom while he's gone and Absalom is doing everything possible under the sun to do, make sure that that happens. Unthinkable things that I, would hate, I even have a hard time reading about in, in the middle of church. <laughs> Horrible things to get back at his father, to take power in an unjust way. And David's got this pursuit against him. And, and what's, what's interesting, though, what I love about this is that when the common reaction to a vendetta would probably be fight or flight. Would you agree with that? I mean, how many of you are, like, when you're persecuted, you're afflicted, you're a fighter. How many of you are a fighter? Got any fighters here? One fighter? I don't believe this. In Jeff's church, I don't believe that there's one fighter in the room. <laughs> Two? Yeah, okay, we got fighters. Okay, a few fighters. I like to slap and run, so I'm a, I'm a, I like to flee. <laughs> but um, <laughs> fly, uh, fight or flight is the common human reaction. When, we're, when wrong is done to us. But again, the way of Christ is different. The way of Christ, we bear one another's burdens. And I love how this text goes on because if you read ahead, you know, maybe when you go home, you can read the next chapter or two, you'll see that David's friends start to emerge, even kind of behind the scenes and kind of, it seems a little maybe deceptive, but it isn't because they're being strategic and very, um, supportive of David, even to try and pose as a spy for, on David's behalf. And his friends start, you know, there's, there's Hush, Hushai who goes in and 
pretends to be a friend of Absalom, and Absalom's like, wait, I thought you were a friend of my dad's, but great, you can worship me, that's wonderful. And Hushai gets information to pass on to Jonathan and this other guy, uh, Ahimaaz is his name. And Jonathan and Ahimaaz take, take this information and they go hide in this lady's well as Absalom and the army come through looking for David. Absalom and his army go up to this lady's door, a lady who owns the well, and they're like, hey, where'd, where'd David go? Where'd he go? And she's like, I don't know. And then David and Jonathan and Ahimaaz are down in the well and they're listening and getting even more information. And they get out of the well after Absalom's gone, run to David, tell him what's going on, and David ends up fine. Just your friends emerging, um, bearing one another's burdens as the way of Christ. I mentioned before that I, I, I've been hurt by the church. I'm sure there are people in this room, many who have been hurt by the church. The church, just so you know, um, in case you're new to the church, the church is the bride of Christ, but there are, it is full of imperfect people, <laughs> um, who, just like you and me. <laughs> and um, it's not always easy to love, but I've found that in my darkest times, my most difficult seasons of my life, it's leaning into my brothers and sisters that helps get me through those times. That's where I in my experience, at least, that I've experienced the greatest amount of God's grace in the midst of affliction is through my brothers and sisters here. I mean, maybe some of you have even endured an actual vendetta, like from a family member, like your, your family members have done you wrong. Um, I want you to know that you have another family here. It's an imperfect family, but, but we're a family that's striving toward Christ. We're pursuing the light of Christ, and we're together, and we're, we're, we're learning together. And so we bear one another's burdens as part of that. We lift one another up. Part of my struggle has been with, um, I've been diagnosed actually with, I hope this isn't too real for you guys. You guys look like scared or something. But, <laughs> but um, I've been actually diagnosed with um, like a severe chronic depressive and anxiety disorder that makes it really tough to even get up here to, to talk in front of people. Really hard to be in rooms where there's a lot of people I don't know um, so it's had an effect on my ministry in like a pretty profound way. Um, but it's been through people like, like my friend Jeff Ludington. I mean, Jeff, I can count now back to about probably four different kind of crises I've had since the time I've known Jeff. And he's been there for every single one <laughs> as a friend. I mean, he's a pastor, right? Yeah, but as a friend. Um, I've got other, other friends, Matt Ortiz down in San Diego, who... He's been there for me. I've been able to be there for him in the darkest times when we know we're not going to judge each other <laughs> regardless of what comes out of our mouth when I call the church a whore and um, all these other things. <laughs> they, they're not going to judge me and they're going to understand and they're going to pray for and with me um, and see me through. We need those types of relationships. We need brothers and sisters around us who can strengthen us and lift us up we need to hear one another's stories of how we've endured suffering in the past. Otherwise, we, we think we're alone in this. We need to hear other people's stories. You've got to be with people and understand what they've been through or are even going through right now and how the mature in faith are going through this stuff. I need stories of even saints who are no longer with us. I need to hear about Spurgeon, you know, the great English preacher who, I mean, extreme struggle with depression and melancholy to the point that he 
couldn't even hardly open his mouth sometimes when he got into the pulpit to preach. Uh, my pastor I, that I grew up with, Pastor Schatz, Dr. Don, who was vulnerable enough to share with me even when I was a teenager about his struggle with depression. And that stuck with me. And back then I didn't know I struggled, that was really going to be my struggle. But now I remember back and I've seen him now in his mid-60s still serving Christ with, with zealousness. <laughs> I need those stories of Ignatius <laughs> enduring persecution. We need those things. And I love that this passage goes that way. And I think it's appropriate that as we, we go to take the Lord's Supper, you know, you've given, I call it a little COVID packet in the early service, um, but you got a little bit of grape juice in here and you got a little piece, a little wafer of bread. And I think as we talk about the idea of um, the community of Christ being together in the midst of affliction, this is what Christ has given us to make it very real for us. This is a constant reminder for us. Not only is this a reminder, I mean, it's so much more than a reminder of the suffering Christ went through and, and, and how we now, because of what he suffered, can now suffer well and, and experience joy in the midst of it. It's so much more than a reminder, though, because through this, there's something mysterious that happens. And I don't want to freak you out or anything, but, but there's something mysterious because God is with us. And the Bible says that when we're gathered together in His name, there He is among us. So God is with us and among us right now. And regardless of what you're going through, maybe you're going through a great time in life. Maybe things are wonderful and you're having one of those seasons. Uh, praise God for that. I'm kind of in one of those seasons right now myself, which is great after the season I just came out of. Maybe you're in one of those hard seasons, though, and you're being persecuted or you're being slandered or going through some sort of suffering. And experience life from Christ as you take this. Christ has this incredible power to fill us with the power of His Spirit. And this says that we come together and we acknowledge how great He is and what He saved us from and saved us for. And so um, if anybody didn't receive one of these as they came in, maybe you could raise your hand and we'll be happy to give you one. Um, the band is going to come up and we're going to sing a song. But I want to pray for you and, and we'll sing a song. Let that song be your prayer to God. And then we'll come and take this together, okay? Lord, we thank you for this opportunity um, to hear maybe a, maybe a word that's not exactly comfortable, but one that needs to be heard. Lord, I needed to hear this from you as I was preparing this previous week. And I want to thank you for the sufferings that you've allowed me to go through. They're nothing compared to some of the sufferings that people, some people in here have gone through and um, definitely nowhere near what some Christians are enduring right now. But that does not minimize um, the effect of the suffering that you want to have on me and my heart. Lord, when we face suffering, we ask that you would help us. This way of Christ is definitely beyond us. <laughs> Um, if we could depend on ourselves and our own abilities, that's what, I would, that's what you would tell people. That's what I would have told people this morning. But that's not what your word says. Your word says that when we endure stuff, we don't look inward. We look upward toward you. We look outward toward one another. And you strengthen us through that. So God, we thank you for this incredible, um, we've talked about this energy this morning that, that Paul writes about, that he continues in the midst of persecution and continues to teach the word of God in the midst of that because of the energy that you've given him 
that comes from Christ. We need that. We need you to fill us with your presence and lead and guide us. Lord, this morning I want to pray um, specifically for anybody in this room that's that's going through a tough time. Um, They're not alone. Uh, They know that you are there. uh, You are there with them. Uh, We thank you that for those in here that maybe you're being slandered, that your name is great and theirs doesn't have to be. They can lean into your name that's perfect. And so God, we thank you for that incredible gift. For those who endure persecutions, Lord, we ask that you would help them to endure well and that maybe even by your grace they would come to a place where they can rejoice in the persecution, even though it might seem impossible right now. God, for those of us who are enduring um, an ongoing persecution or or vendetta against us, um, Lord, I pray that your strength would endure in them, that they would remain faithful, remain faithful to your word, spend time in your word, memorizing scripture, praying. um, But Lord, you've given us this incredible family around us right now, this this spiritual family, this not just merely up in heaven right now, your presence and glory, but it's also here right in this room um, with one another. And so, Lord, would you help us to take advantage of that, lean into one another, to experience your grace through one another. God, we we come to you now in preparation to receive these elements that you, your son, gave to us as a gift, to remember your death on a cross, but also to have hope for the, the days ahead when you come and restore everything for your name's sake. Lord, we give you this song right now as our form of worship and prayer.